Well, this weekend we do continue this series that we kicked off last weekend called Vantage Point, where we're looking at the cross of Jesus from the different perspectives of those who were eyewitnesses to it 2,000 years ago. Like any circumstance we may go through in life, there are always alternative viewpoints. I mean, how you see something determines your experience, whether it be an event that you attend or maybe a season of life that you may endure, Right? And so last weekend, we took a look at the soldiers, or uh, sorry, the religious leaders and how they contributed to the death of Jesus. You see, really, they were the ones who wanted Christ dead more than anyone. Jesus was um, a threat to their authority and their religion, and so they thought the best case scenario, the best solution to deal with him was just to have him executed. Now, in order for Jesus to be killed, the religious leaders needed to work in partnership with the government so they could have access to the Roman soldiers. And so today we are going to look at the cross of Jesus from the vantage point of the Roman soldiers and see just how they put an end to the greatest man who's ever walked the face of the earth. I know that we have a lot of people here with us that really want nothing to do with God whatsoever. You're here and you're surprised the roof hasn't caved in yet, right? Uh, Or it could be that you're just really skeptical about what this big place is off the highway. And so whatever your reasoning is for being here, I want you to know that we're really glad that you're here. And that regardless if you ever decide to come back to Crossroads, that you matter to us. And ultimately, you matter to God. Now, before you leave here this afternoon, you're going to think one of two things to yourself. You're either going to think, man, that was the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard in my life, which a lot of people do think after I get done teaching. Um, Or you're going to have some things to really think through and process. But I want you to know up front that nobody is going to force anything down your throat. No one's going to force you to believe anything before leaving here today. Now, before we look at the cross from the perspective of the Roman soldiers, I think it's important that we look at a statement that we identified last weekend. And if you weren't here with us, that's okay. I'm going to throw it up here on the screens. But here it is. Nobody put Jesus on the cross. He put himself there. I mean, the cross did not catch Jesus by surprise. I mean, he never lost control. You see, this is why it's entirely wrong to say that someone took Jesus' life. Why is that? Well, you only take things from people who are weak, vulnerable, or ignorant. And you see, none describe Jesus. He was always in complete control, regardless of what it looked like on the outside. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up to the New Testament book of Matthew. Uh, if you have uh, maybe an app on your phone or iPad or digital device, go ahead and jump there now. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you in the pew. And if you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's underneath the chairs right in front of you. And uh, that is our gift to you. Take that home. Uh, that is yours to keep. We really want you to get acquainted with the Word of God because we believe that the Word of God uh, contains the power to literally change your life and guide you through uh, life. Now today we're going to pick up in chapter 27 of Matthew. I believe it's on page 705 in those Bibles right in front of you. Now as you're turning to Matthew 27, you need to understand that Matthew's biography on the life of Jesus, his intent for writing this whole thing is to convince his Jewish audience that Jesus really was the Christ that they had been anticipating for thousands upon thousands of years. Now, Christ was not Jesus' last name. Rather, it was his title that meant the one sent by God, the one speaking on behalf of God. Jesus was the Messiah. And so for the Jews, that meant that if Jesus really was God in flesh, that they no longer had to go through animal sacrifices in order to be saved. Rather, Jesus was their better, all-sufficient sacrifice. And so another interesting theme, holding that kind of in the background, another interesting theme that Matthew writes with is saying that Jesus shows no favoritism towards any type of nationality. 
You see, though Jesus was a Jew, his message was for anybody and everybody. Now, this was really, really controversial and almost offensive to a first century Jew considering they believed that their race and nationality was superior towards those who were outside of it. You see, back then, people placed their identity and self-worth in their family heritage a lot more than you and I tend to do today. Now, because my last name is Garcia, people have a lot of questions about my ethnicity. Just last weekend before the Saturday night service, I was standing backstage and a lady ran up to me. She didn't greet me. She didn't say hi or anything. She just said, hey, what's your last name again? I said, Garcia. She said, that's right. You're that foreigner. (laughs) And she's right. I am from Kentucky. Uh, (laughs) Well, she then proceeded to say, Garcia, huh? Is that Chinese? And so at that point, I'm like, I'm going to have some fun with this. I said, yep, sure is. How'd you know? She said, I could just tell by looking at you. <laughs> True story. Didn't exaggerate a line of that. Now, I'm not, I'm not Chinese, just so you know. I want to clear that up. Uh, but my last name does come from my Cuban side of the family. That's why I have one of the most common Hispanic last names. All right, so throughout Matthew's account here, okay, His message that he is continually conveying is that despite your nationality, Jesus welcomes anybody who welcomes him. All right, so despite your race, gender, religious background, Jesus, Jesus is for everyone. And so he's going to continue to illustrate this in a very dramatic way. One instance is in uh, verse 54 of Matthew 27. Uh, Jesus has just breathed his last while hanging upon the cross the soldiers are nearby and they see this taking place. And I want to just pick up on what we read in verse 54. So the soldiers said this. They said, this man truly was the son of God. This man truly was the son of God. Now how on earth does that tell us that Jesus welcomes anybody who welcomes him? Now hang with me for a second. You have to realize that this was the most important point in history up until this particular point in time. Really this is the turning point of all history. You see, regardless if you follow Jesus or believe in him or not, there is no question that he is the most influential, famous, controversial, revolutionizing figure to have ever walked the face of the earth. I mean, he didn't own a home. He never wrote a book. He he didn't have a wife or kids. He never led an army. He never held a political office. Yet, without Jesus, aside from the church, today we wouldn't have hospitals. I mean, without Jesus, we wouldn't treat children the way that we do. Without Jesus, women wouldn't have equality. Fighting against slavery wouldn't be seen as something that's noble. You see, Jesus has been so influential throughout the story of humanity that every time you so even look at a calendar or date a check, you are acknowledging in that moment that the life of Christ is the dividing line in all of history. Now, normally, when a person writes a biography on the life of someone famous, they will spend a majority of their time focusing on what that person obtained or achieved throughout the course of their life. But very rarely will the author write anything or spend a good majority of his or her time writing about the death of that person. And so they might spend a paragraph on it, maybe even a chapter. But when we open up Jesus' biographies found in Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, On average, a third of their words deal with the death of Jesus. Why is that? Well, Jesus lived so he could die. And you see, his death was the most important event that he ever endured. And so, 
If Jesus is the most influential, revolutionizing figure to have ever walked the face of the earth, and if his death was the most important event that he went through, then what that means for us today is that his crucifixion is the most important event in the history of mankind from the beginning of time up until right now in 2015. And so knowing this, knowing this, Matthew uses a group of Gentile Roman soldiers in that moment to proclaim the identity of who Jesus is and was. And so what that means for us today is that despite despite your job situation, I mean, regardless of who you're going to cheer for in March Madness, no matter your skin color, gender, whatever, our need as people is the exact same. And thankfully, Jesus meets us right where we're at. And so um, up until this point, Now, the soldiers, uh, before proclaiming Jesus as God in flesh here in verse 54, they had just spent several previous hours beating, kicking, mocking Jesus. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time today is to answer this one simple question that's probably lingering in your minds right about now. What changed? I mean, what changed? I mean, how how in the world could you go from abusing and honoring someone within the span of a few hours to then worshiping him and proclaiming him as God. And so what we've done is we've kind of begun with the end in mind, knowing where this scene is ultimately going to end up, that the soldiers do come to belief in Christ. Now, what I want to do for the remainder of our time today is kind of work backwards and see what brought them up until this particular point. So I want you to reverse back to verse 26 in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, here's what we read. Pilate ordered Jesus flogged with a lead whip and then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters and called out the entire regiment. Now, if the entire regiment was present that day, it meant that 600 Roman soldiers were there to aid in Jesus' beating and crucifixion. That seems like a bit overkill for just one person, right? But you see, they knew that there was something different about this man. You see, just in case Jesus really was whom he said he was, God in flesh, they wanted reinforcements there to ensure control in the event that he would try escaping. You see, crucifixions had been around for about 700 years up until this particular point in time. And so you get the idea that these guys really knew what they were doing when they were killing someone. Now, crucifixion, it was a slave's death. I mean, it was the worst way possible to be murdered. The pain one would experience was so painful that a new word had to be invented in order to describe it. It's actually where we get the word excruciating from. Now excruciating in its most purest form literally means out of the cross. Now before Jesus was even nailed to the cross, he was whipped with a weapon called a flagrum. This was a long leather whip with sharp jagged pieces of bone and lead at the ends. And each time the victim was flogged, it would pull apart the skin and the muscle tissue that was beneath the skin. Medical doctors today have stated that uh, without medical attention, that an individual would bleed out and die within a few hours just in this form of torture alone. Verse 28. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches with a crown and put it on his head. And they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him. And they grabbed the stick and struck him on the head with it. Now knowing that Jesus claimed to be king, the soldiers decided to have a little bit of fun with this. Okay, I mean to them it was really irony. 
I mean, here you have this guy who stated that he reigned over a kingdom and that he was the God of the universe, and yet what God in their right mind would be, subject, would be subjected to such mockery? I mean, if he really was the leader and the ruler that he claimed to be, where were his followers? Where was his army to really back him up? And so when the soldiers put the robe and crown of thorns upon him, it's as if they are saying, you've got nothing on Rome, buddy. You may have had a following for a little while, but now you look like this naked, mutilated animal in front of this crowd. Verse 31. When they were finally tired of mocking him, they took off the robe and they put on his own clothes on him again. Then they led him away to be crucified. Now I want, you to time, I want to time out here for, for just a moment. Now as, Paul, as Todd said a moment ago, we have a much better vantage point of the crucifixion considering that we're 2,000 years removed from the event. I mean, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to win in just about three short days, okay? But let me ask you something. Where are you at in this scene? I mean, are you joining in and mocking along with the soldiers? Are you maybe standing on the sidelines, blending in with the crowd? Or would you be grieving over what's taking place? Now, I have to be honest with you for a moment. I really don't like that question. I've heard it asked before. And to me, it's a little bit ridiculous. Since we weren't there, there's really no way of knowing. But you know what? Chances are we'd like to think that we would stop the soldiers over their obvious abuse and injustice. And maybe that would be you. I mean, perhaps you would have more faith in the disciples because you know what? Here in this scene, they're nowhere to be found. They're nowhere to be found at this point. The men who had been Jesus' best friends for the past three years had completely abandoned him. Now here's the real point that I'm getting at. History supports what the Bible has said all along. That our hearts are evil and when you get people together in a crowd, we are capable of committing some horrific acts. Now here's something offensive. There's not one person in this room or in the chapel with us today that is beyond doing what the soldiers did to Jesus. I mean after all, from a greater spiritual perspective, it was our sin that sent Jesus to the cross and brought this all about. Now, maybe you're thinking right about now, well, Patrick, that's just not true. I mean, people at the end of the day are inherently good. They just occasionally maybe make stupid, bad decisions. And, are, and those people that commit real evil, I mean, they're the exception. Those are just animals, right? Now, when you get beyond those excuses and you get honest with yourself, I mean, don't you have those moments where You've done or thought things that's left you wondering where in the world did that come from? I mean, I didn't even know I was capable of thinking or doing or saying something like that. You see, left unchecked, sin will take us further than we ever wanted to go and will make us do things that we never intended to do. Romans chapter 3 says it like this. Paul says, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see, here's the thing about you and I. We're sinners. We have rebelled against our creator. And sometimes I think we can throw that term sin around a lot without really knowing what it means. And so just so we're all on the same page and for clarifying purposes, we're going to define sin as this. That sin is both a condition and a decision. You see, this sin condition that we have has been passed down to us from our original parents, Adam and Eve. This isn't something that we need to learn. It's instinctive. 
And so what this means is that you and I love ourselves. We have this natural bent within us to love ourselves more than God and others. And again, nobody has to teach us this, right? Uh, I have a, a 20-month-old daughter who has these big, brown, beautiful eyes, precious curly hair, a laugh that is just contagious. And whenever she talks, she's got this tiny little voice that will make you give in to just whatever she's requesting or asking for in that moment. Now, you and I both know that our role as parents is to teach our children. We're supposed to teach them about life. But do you know what? I mean, as her father, I have never had to sit her down at the kitchen table and say, hey, Vera, can I just show you how to be a self-centered princess a little bit more often? <laughs> I mean, I have never said, hey, baby, can I, can I just show you some ways you can act like the world revolves around you a little bit more frequently? <laughs> no, by show fans, any parent ever had to have that conversation with their child? Not at all, right? I mean, it just comes the day they are born, it's all about them. And they bring nothing to the table, right? I mean, they cause you sleepless nights and poop in their pants. And I mean, it's, it's horrible at times. But you know what? That's why as parents, our responsibility is to teach discipline through obedience. Why? Because we're born thinking that we're awesome. Therefore, life quickly becomes about everything that's going to make us happy and comfortable. You see, that's what it means to possess this sin condition. Now, inevitably, our sin condition leads to decisions that we make. These are those moments for us when what, what is residing within us becomes, uh, becomes exposed to the outside world through our behavior, through different things that we do. Now, let me ask you, have you ever done something and before you did it, you thought to yourself, man, I really shouldn't be doing this right about now? Or have you ever done something that you thought, man, I, I didn't know I was capable of doing that? A couple months ago, uh, my wife wanted to switch out all the electrical sockets and light switches and covers in our bathroom. We had just painted the room, and she wanted it to match our trim in there. And for someone who really can't hang a picture frame on a wall, I had no business attempting such a task. But I thought to myself, you know what, rather than paying and having an electrician to come out and do this, I bet I can figure it out all on my, all on my own. And so one afternoon, I headed out to a local hardware store and got everything that I needed in order to install these new switches and sockets. Well, I came home, and to my credit, I was smart enough to turn off the electricity at the breaker in the garage. I went upstairs at that point, successfully uninstalled the old switches and sockets and put in the new ones. Well, at that time, I then had to see if the new ones were going to work. And so I had to go downstairs, turn on the electricity, come back up, and to my surprise, I flipped that switch and nothing turned on. And so I had to then go back downstairs, turn off the electricity, come back up, make some tweaks, fiddle with some wires, and then go turn off the electricity, come back upstairs and see if the tweak had worked. You get the idea how annoying and time-consuming this whole entire process was. Now, it should have taken somebody around 10 or 15 minutes. Well, 90 minutes into this project, I had hit a wall. I mean, whatever patience I had had completely left me, which meant only one thing. My tendency to do something stupid was increasing by the moment. <laughs> now, I knew I shouldn't have done this. Um, apparently, there are warnings against doing such a thing. I definitely went against my better judgment when it came to this. But in a last-minute effort to get these switches working, and in order to save time, I no longer saw the need to go downstairs and turn off the electricity. And so I took that metal screwdriver and I stuck it in that live socket. <laughs> and the next thing I knew, I am on the opposite side of the bathroom on the floor screaming in pain. 
Uh, you, you laugh about it. Uh, <laughs> it's really funny. According to certain eyewitnesses who were there, the moment I stuck that metal screwdriver into the live socket, it shot me literally across the bathroom on the opposite side of the floor. Unfortunately, I didn't receive much compassion from my wife. Um, do you know what a redneck's famous last words are? Hold my beer, watch this. <laughs> so this is kind of that moment for me, all right? And I can't believe I'm telling you this, my goodness. Um, where am I going? Uh, now, before that moment, if you would have said to me, you know what, Patrick, is it a good idea to stick something metal into an electrical socket? I would have said, I would have laughed in your face, first of all, and said, absolutely not. And if you would have asked me why, I would have given you all the right reasons. I would have said, well, because you could get shocked really badly. But instead, out of my frustration and impatience, I did something that I really regretted. You see, I lied to myself and said that I would be the exception. Now, I thought I wouldn't get hurt. I thought that the law of electricity wouldn't apply to me in that moment, but instead I ended up doing something that I really regretted, and the only person to blame for the choice that I had made was myself. And you see, the reality is that's a lot of our stories in here today. You thought nobody would find out. You thought, you thought they wouldn't get hurt. You thought what you were doing was harmless. You, you lied to yourself and said, well, it can't be that big of a deal. But instead, you woke up one morning in pain, lying on the ground, completely ambushed by the fallout of the decision that you had made. You ever been there before? I know I have. Many times. And we're in good company. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 7. He says, I don't really understand myself. Do you see this frustration coming out through his words? I don't understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, what does he do? I do what I hate, he writes. And so regardless of how horrible or great your decisions have been in life, your brokenness reveals your need for somebody to save you. Now because of the cross of Jesus, he can not only take care of your sin problem, but his offer also includes covering over your guilt that's been the result of your shame. I mean, how differently would your life look if you knew that forgiveness was possible and that shame-free living is not just a far-off idea? I want to go back to our story. <clears throat> I want you to keep in mind that the soldiers are about to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. And so again, we have to ask ourselves, what's changed here? Skip to verse 33 if you're following along. They arrive at the site of the crucifixion and look at what we see next. <clears throat> and they went out to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. The soldiers gave Jesus wine mixed with bitter gall, but when he had tasted it, he refused to drink it. What's this all about? Well, wine and gold was used uh, in order to numb the pain that criminals would feel as they were experiencing crucifixion. So for even the person who was crucifying the individual, they had compassion upon them for how horrific this whole entire process was. But Jesus refused it. Look at verse 35. After they nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. You see, Jesus was shamed to remove our shame. He was naked so that we wouldn't have to fear when our sin one day would be exposed. Verse 36, then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. It read this, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. You see, it was custom to write out the crime of the individual on a board on top of the cross so that people who would see the crucifixion knew why that individual was there to begin with. And so as the soldiers wrote 
wrote this, that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews, they were mocking him. This was all done out of mockery because kings, they weren't executed like this. I mean, kings never faced this level of humiliation. This was a slave or maybe a rebel's way of dying. You see, records show us that there was around 18 other men during the first century who claimed to be some type of, mas- some type of Messiah, and all 18 were executed through crucifixion. You see, this was Rome's way of saying, don't mess with us because our kingdom will always trump over your religion and your ideologies. Now, what we know is that those other men who claimed to be sent some front sent from some higher power, their legacies and teachings died with them. But that certainly wasn't the case for Jesus. And so what was so noticeably different about him from the vantage point of the soldiers as they watched him suffocate and bleed out that they in turn would say, that man is the son of God. I mean, what about his death instantly transformed them from beating and mocking him to believing in him in just a few short hours? And, uh, In Jesus' final final moments, the soldiers would have heard him say several different things. Everything from telling the thief on the cross who was hanging beside him that he would be with him in paradise that day. They would have overheard Jesus ask God to forgive them for what they were doing. On another occasion, Jesus shouted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus' very last words were three simple ones. It is finished. And the moment Jesus breathed his last, things get a little bit interesting. Skip to verse 51. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split apart and split open, and tombs were opened. The bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. I mean, can you imagine it being just this average Friday afternoon and all of a sudden you hear a knock at the door and it's granny who's been dead for 10 years. (laughs) I mean, this is like an episode of The Walking Dead, right? Verse 54, take a look. The Roman officer and the other soldiers at the crucifixion were terrified by the earthquake and all that had happened. I mean, what in the world is this all about? I mean, you've got an earthquake The rocks are splitting. The dead are coming to life. Well, this is really interesting because the Bible tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. In other words, everything that you see, everything created was created in him and through him. And so whenever this occurred, whenever we see creation just kind of erupt, that was creation's way of mourning over what had happened. It represented the injustice that had happened to Jesus on that particular day, yet pointed, yet pointed to the greater need for all things in creation to be renewed that had been tainted by sin. You see, it probably seemed like the world was coming to a close and to an end that day. And so we're back to where we started a few moments ago. Everything that we just read, everything that we just saw, led the soldiers to say this. They said, this man truly was the son of God. Now, obviously, a massive transformation had to have occurred in their hearts and their minds. But again, we have to ask ourselves, why? Now, I don't know this for certain. And scripture certainly doesn't give us the motives behind this or the thought process behind the Roman soldiers saying this. But what I think we can do 
is I think we can piece together some logical reasoning and I just want to give my opinion on why I believe the soldiers led to this particular point in time. And so realize that these soldiers had probably crucified all the other supposed messiahs who walked the earth, but there was something different about Jesus that made them set it. And so what was it? I think it's really simple. It comes down to this. Jesus died better than anyone. Jesus died better than anyone. You see, he didn't fight back. He didn't speak words of hate towards them as they were nailing his hands and his feet into the wooden beams. He didn't seek revenge. Instead, he asked for his God in heaven to forgive what they were doing. There was this unexplainable way about him that seemed to be in control. He died with a sense of mission. And you see, this really shouldn't surprise us considering that no one really put Jesus on that cross. He put himself there because he understood that it was either you and me or him. And so he stood up and he said, look, take me instead. And you see, perhaps it was how Jesus died that led the Roman soldiers to realize why he died. Now, as we wrap up here, I just want to talk real briefly to the only two groups of people who are here with us right now. The first group of us are those who have declared what the soldiers have said at some point in their life, that Jesus, you are the son of God. We have made that statement of belief and we have patterned our life after following Jesus. Now, I want to lean into this a little bit in your life. To believe in Jesus means to follow Jesus, right? I mean, to trust means that there's always going to be action attached to it. And so if you say you believe that Jesus is the son of God, are there some areas of your life that need to reflect this more fully and completely? I mean, if you have been forgiven for your sin, do you maybe need to forgive someone else's sin that has been inflicted upon your life? I mean, if it's true that Jesus has absorbed all your shame, do you really need to keep living a double life? If the truest thing about who you are as a person is that you've been adopted into the family of God, do you really need to run after approval so often from others? I mean, if you have been the recipient of God's kindness, can that be detected in the way that you speak to your spouse? You see, the cross not only challenges us, but it changes us on a daily basis. And so I don't know what it looks like for you, but I do know that as a follower of Jesus, we're gonna continue to be renewed by the cross of Christ. Now, the only other group in here are those of us who who aren't there yet with the Lord. We haven't made that statement of declaration and said, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go all in and follow Jesus. I mean, you have your reasons, right? I mean, you don't understand some things that you may read in the Bible. Perhaps you've been burned by some type of religion in the past or it could be that you're just afraid of what may change if you make that decision in your life. You fear letting go of control. And so what I just wanna challenge you to do before leaving here today is that if you're ready to go all in, is to say to yourself and to say to some other people, look, Jesus really is the son of God. I believe that and I'm gonna lean my life up against that from here on out. Now, what I'm not saying is that you have to have it all figured out. I'm not saying that you have to have all the questions that you have about the Bible and, uh, you know, existence and reality and all that figured out. No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm not even saying that you have to be perfect. But I am saying that you have to come to this place where you realize that you can't save yourself and that you need a Savior. And that Savior, we believe, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so if that's a decision that you want to make today, in just a few moments, we're going to sing a song and then we're going to get out of here. 
As we're dismissed, I just encourage you to stay seated, all right? Uh, some of our section hosts, they wear red lanyards. They are prepared and equipped to uh, walk you through what your next step, maybe as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, looks like. Uh, they'll be there to answer whatever questions you may have about faith and, and where you're at in your journey in general. And so I just encourage you to stay seated as we're dismissed, uh, and our section host team and red lanyards will make their way towards you. I'm going to pray, but as, uh, before I do that, let's go ahead and stand up uh, because we're going to finish out with one last song. Father, um, I love you, and, and that's, a, that's a process, and that's a journey. And God, I just thank you for saving me. I thank you for being patient with me. God, I'm thankful that you put up with me, and that, God, you are faithful even when I'm not. And so, Lord, would you, would you teach us in here to allow the cross to reflect in our, in our daily life more fully and completely? God, would you, would you help us to obey you out of gratitude and out of delight, out of what you've already done? Because Christianity is all about what you've done, not about what we do. And God, I also know that there's some of us here who are afraid of letting go. We're, we haven't really given our lives to you because we fear releasing that, that type of control. And, and we've maybe had some people in our life that claim to follow you, but have just messed some things up. And so God, would you show us that, that you are good? And would you remind us that your grace really is sufficient and you don't promise to exempt us from pain and trials in life but you do promise to be with us through it and God the cross is evidence enough that you're not a God absent of suffering but you're a God who, who willingly endured it and we thank you for that thank you for being our cornerstone it's in Jesus name we pray amen